1: Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Shereen Ahmed, freelance writer and sports activist in Toronto, and I'm leading the toxic femininity charge this week. On this week's panel, we have the weightlifter extraordinaire, my favorite PhD candidate, croissant maker and author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. Jessica Luther. She's in Austin. And we have the indomitable and brilliant Lindsay Gibbs with the most beautiful laugh, the mightiest pen, my favorite new cricket fan, and freelance sports reporter, creator of Power Plays newsletter. Sign up at powerplays.news. She's in D.C. Before we start, I would like to thank our patrons for their generous support and to remind our new flamethrowers about our Patreon campaign. You pledge a certain amount monthly, as low as $2 and as high as you want, to become an official patron of the podcast. And in exchange for your monthly contribution, you get access to special rewards. With the price of a latte a month, you can get access to extra segments of the podcast, a monthly newsletter, and an opportunity to record on the burn pile only available to those in our Patreon community, in addition to our new vlog. So far, we have been able to solidify funding for proper editing and transcripts, and our social media guru, Shelby. But we're hoping to reach our dream of hiring a producer to help us with the show. Burn It All Down is a labor of love, and we all believe in this podcast. But having a producer to help us as we grow would be amazing. And we are so, so grateful for your support and happy that our flame throwing family is growing. We have a kick-ass show for you this week. We will be talking about Maria Sharapova retiring. We have an interview with Claire Hanna, TV news reporter with CTV in Regina, Saskatchewan, about volleyball and everyone's favorite thing, curling. Also, we're going to round up the show with a really important discussion on women's soccer. But before we start, let's talk about something really important zamboni drivers don't you mean star nhl
0: bullies you
1: (laughs) absolutely but it's rooted in the canadian cultural classic everybody wants to grow up to be a zamboni driver (laughs) truly it is very canadian it was like my life i wanted to drive a zamboni yeah i totally did so I mean, so, true? for those of you that don't, that know, sounds very Canadian uh, to me. The Carolina Hurricanes were in Toronto last weekend, and both of their goalies, <laughs> you can still make that dream their got injured. So, what happens is it's NHL policy to be able to have a third string, meaning like a backup. So, David Ayers, who is a Zamboni driver at Air Canada Center in Toronto, filled in. He filled in. He's a 42-year-old. He plays hockey. He coaches as well. And he filled in. And what happened was every person who is a hockey fan, rather, their dream come alive. It was like a fairy tale. It was awesome. The Carolina went on to beat the Leafs 6-3. But it was just, you know, this this kind of, I, I don't know if I want to say Cinderella story, but just this, this thing. Like Jessica Linz, what was the news about that? And Linz, you're from North Carolina. Like, was this a big
0: deal? Yeah, and honestly, I just feel like we like use Canadian culture against you because it was beating the Leafs. So it was just <laughs> I love that part of it. Like it was I, I like, know it's meta. <laughs> it was very meta. Like I love that you're you're like oh we love this so much, and then it was like yeah, but Carolina won. <laughs> like it's just kind of fun, but it was so cool. Like I love. I, I don't follow the, the NHL as closely as I used to, but I still. Um, Yeah, I I love the hurricanes. And I'm glad like their team, their media and their PR people are just seem like really good good people on the team so I've just loved following them from afar and it was everyone was so happy I feel like I feel like Car- the Carolinas really needed that because it has been a very uh rough <laughs> few months in the sports land there and that it was a dominating story like it was leading everything um we we love him <laughs> like he is forever a North Carolina hero so you know it's just <laughs> it's it, it's just too good I just I love it but I I did read that they were like now NHL owners and stuff are having meetings like rediscussing these emergency goalie rules and someone tweeted, wish I could remember who, like (laughs) the only thing you know for sure about sports is like anytime anything joyful happens, they will take it away.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know anything about this, the rule or anything like that. And I just found everything about this to be amazing and perfect. So my understanding is that this was only the third time that this rule has ever been used. And I just the idea that like you keep a third third string goalie around just in case either team needs him so that he can like hop in. Just that idea is, is very sweet on some level. I liked the part of his story. Air had a, got a kidney transplant 15 years ago and his mom gave him the kidney And he went on the Today Show because he's been this like big media sensation. And they surprised him by like Skyping in or whatever you would call it, his mom. So his mom got to share that moment of him being on the Today Show and everyone celebrating him. And I also think it's really neat that his stick from the game is going to be put into the Hockey Hall of Fame. So I loved everything about the story.
1: Yeah, it's been really great. The one thing I did want to say without being super critical, no, I'm going to be critical in one regard. He has a hockey card already made up for him. And I know that his t-shirt, because I was wanting to get one. Like, I'm like, this is really fun. I appreciate the Carolina Hurricanes and their hockey culture. And we don't give a fuck about anything. And I I like that they do their own thing. Um, I also appreciate they beat the Leafs. But also, he gets a hockey card. And then I sit back and think, women's hockey players don't get hockey cards like I just you see you see the disparity so glaringly and when one follows women's hockey and sees the struggles like this guy undoubtedly his story is wonderful it really is a fun fun story but there's a part of me that can't help but be like oh I wish you know women could have this too Jess, can you talk to us about Maria Sharapova and her career?
2: Yeah, of course. So most people at all familiar with tennis know the name Maria Sharapova. She broke onto the world stage in 2004 when at the age of 17, she beat Serena Williams in the finals of Wimbledon and uh, Sharapova won her first Grand Slam championship. She then went on to win Four more, including one of each Grand Slam. So the US Open in 2006, the Australian Open in 2008, and then the French Open in 2012 and 2014. And I'll just say, like, winning all four Grand Slams in a career is a hell of a feat. She also won 36 tour singles titles, she won a silver medal in singles in 2012. That was when she lost to Serena, which is a theme in her career. And I'll talk about that in a second. And then Serena famously did the short Crip walk afterwards at Wimbledon. And then Sharapova won the Fed Cup title with Russia in 2008. She spent 21 weeks in her career at number one. So it was a hell of a career. This past week, she announced, unsurprisingly, I think, that she was going to retire from the sport. She struggled a lot since 2016 when she was suspended for 15 months from playing Uh, After testing positive for the banned substance meldonium, she's long suffered from shoulder issues, which led to a shoulder operation in 2008. But still, there's been like a lot of scrutiny of her game and people wondering out loud if her success before 2016 was tied to substances. I think to be clear, like meldonium wasn't banned until like 2015. So she didn't break a rule because there was no rule to break. But I do think that's going to forever Cloud be a cloud over her game, though she still denies that her downturn after the suspension was anything more than a shoulder injury. To the casual tennis fan, I would guess Sharapova is best known for her dismal record against Serena Williams, which ultimately ended with Williams holding a 20 to 2 winning advantage over Sharapova. The media was often hyping their matchups under the term rivalry though there was little doubt about who was actually going to win. In 2017, Vox compellingly labeled the relationship a feud, which I I liked a lot. And in the piece, Alex Abad Santos writes about Sharapova's autobiography that came out in 2017, quote, When you compare what Sharapova says to reality, it seems clear that being pitted against Williams has helped her benefit from their feud in the form of lucrative endorsement deals, magazine spreads, and preferential treatment at professional tournaments. Sharapova also disturbingly exaggerates Williams' physical presence and anger, positing that the combination of the two is the reason that Sharapova has never again beaten Williams. Despite Serena's domination over Sharapova, Maria, until her suspension, I believe, uh, had more and then more lucrative endorsement deals than Serena. For 11 years in a row, Sharapova was the highest-earning female athlete in the world, some of which was due to the fact that she was a very good tennis player, a lot of it was was due to the fact that she was tall and blonde and beautiful and white and skinny. I will absolutely remember Sharapova as an incredibly intense and competitive fighter on the court. Even when she was down, she played hard and with conviction. I mean, it was inspiring, the way that she would play. She'll also be remembered for the way she yelled every time that she hit the ball. I've always been team let them yell and leave them alone, so I have found myself for years defending that over and over again. Uh, ESPN ran a piece about Sharapova upon her retirement that said in part, quote, Sharapova alienated as many people as she awed. She had few friends in the WTA, just rivals who existed in her eyes only to be beaten. The reaction to her retirement among her peers, an outpouring of, well, indifference. I think this is right. The reaction part, it made me think about the fact that when Wozniacki retired in January, it was a very different feeling. uh, People were very sad. There was a lot of... You know, we'll miss you, Caroline. And I don't I don't know. Uh, Lindsay will have a much better idea of this than me about sort of the reaction from other players. SharePo is complicated. I liked watching her play. But in prepping for this, I realize I'm not sure I'm going to miss her. <laughs> but it also feels like she's been gone a long time already. So maybe it's just that this announcement is a formality at this point. I'm already used to her being gone. Lindsay, what are you thinking
0: about this I'm thinking a thousand different things. Yeah. First of all, I feel like almost like I have to whisper this because was <laughs> just everything. But I legitimately am going to miss her, if nothing, because she was just such a good antagonist. And I uh-huh. just think women's That's sports true. in general, like uh, let them be villains, you know, <laughs> like let there be like – You know, everyone had feelings about Sharapova. She had so many fans, and she had a lot of people who hated her. A lot of people who hated her for very legitimate reasons. A lot of people who hated her for very uh, silly and superficial reasons. But, like, people felt things about her. And every time she played, like, that was part of the moment. And, you know, it was, as you all know, like, I'm all team. They don't all have to be liked for me to enjoy them. (laughs) Like, on the court, you know? They don't all have to be a perfect human being I think there's a few things. I I mean, I was always rooting for Cher Poba to do well. I always thought it was a more interesting tour when her intensity was um, at the later stages of tournaments. I mean, she's, for all the talk about like how, yeah, she, I mean, I mean, she is undoubtedly benefited and exploited her white privilege and her looks and her beauty but she also just is one of those people that just like has a presence to her like she just like has like this gravity to to her that not all like uh attractive people have um you know not all tall blonde people have the um like there's a weight that is to um, her everything that she says and does and it's it's really fascinating I think a lot of that is her story I mean she actually does have it's very overlooked now but I mean you know, her family grew up in very poor in in Russia. And, you know, she was at a tennis clinic when they moved to Sochi when she was like two, to escape the Chernobyl aftermath. And she was at a tennis clinic when she was like five with Martina Navratilova. And Martina Navratilova told her dad um, that Maria Sharapova had a lot of promise and that she should think about moving to the States. And so she did. You know, she moved here when she was really young, not knowing any English and, you know, practiced at the Boletarian Academy. Without her mom too, right? Yeah, without her mom. Her mom had visa issues, so couldn't come. And she said her dad spoke you know, even less English than she did. And, you know, she was determined to make it. And she did. And, you know, I think that part of her story, because she had success such at such an early age. I mean, beating Serena Williams on center court at Wimbledon when you're only seventeen in a final, I mean, that's a big moment. And in a lot of ways, because that moment was so big, the rest of her career was kind of trying to to catch back up and to justify like the extent of that moment. And I think she had a very limited game for a superstar. I would say she's probably one of the least talented five, ta- five times slam winners I've ever seen. And that makes me, for me, I don't mean that as an insult. I mean that as like, it's her like determination and her fight that, you know got her to the the stat- the place that she was, like she just watching her play matches, there were times where she just like like all the grades do, but there was i think because she didn't always have the shots and because she was always had shoulder issues and was working with such a limited serve, and because of all of these things, like you know you would watching her refuse to lose tennis matches <laughs> that she had absolutely no winning was fun. Like I enjoyed it. I mean, there's one of the jokes about her is that like Maria Sharapova has never hit a second serve in her life. Like there's a first serve and then there's the second first serve. (laughs) And that's just kind of like how she approached everything um, was just like full on. That being said, I do not – I understand and agree with a lot of the reasons that people find Sharapova incredibly problematic. I mean – I do, I will never understand, I mean, like, if there is not a, like, I mean, every day there are calls for more diversity in the publishing industry. But the fact that her book got published with her that description of Serena and being like, you know, so big and so imposing (laughs) and that didn't get flagged as problematic. And her explanation was that she was writing that as coming onto center court as a 17-year-old teenager to this like multi-time slam winner Serena. And like I do You know, if I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt, which I probably shouldn't, but like I do understand that explanation and probably how Serena seemed to her at that time in her life. But like for nobody to flag that is like, oh, you were, these are, this is racism here. Like you were, you know, these are racist tropes. This is, people are going to take this out of context. It's just, it's just, it's just frustrating. And she certainly, you know, she, she and Serena hated each other. You know, there was that infamous um, Rolling Stone article where Serena called Sharapova, said that she had a black heart. She didn't say it by name, but like said it. We all Uh, knew, yeah, we all knew. (laughs) And you know, there was, you know, they had both kind of dated the same guy, Gregor Dimitrov, which is just the weirdest thing. I didn't know that.
2: Um, That is new information. (laughs)
0: Yeah, well, Sh- well Sherpa was in a relationship with Dimitrov for a long time. Oh, I knew and that all, one. There, there had <laughs> always been rumors that 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 Serena had dated him for a little bit um, beforehand, which is just weird. And then you know, Dimitrov was at the Mort- uh, Patrick Mortaglu Academy, and then you know, that's. Serena's coach. Anyways. Yeah. So there's just like all of this drama. And then Sharapova in a press conference. This is probably when the Vice article came out. Sharapova in the press conference uh, came out after the black Blackheart thing, like called out Serena for kind of being – she didn't say it by name, but like – being with Patrick and like breaking up a marriage because there were oh, all right. these her like boy- oh there yeah. were all of these photos that came out of Serena and her coach Patrick Mortaglu, like uh you know with their hands in each other's back pockets like shopping and stuff like very intimate poses while Patrick was married um so anyways like it's just kind of you know shit got. Heady for a while on both ends. And I don't know. I mean, I'm also one not to hand-wring over doping stuff. I think Jess and I are kind of on the same page here a little bit. Like, uh, so I know there are a lot of people who will forever put an asterisk by her career because of the M- meldonium, but in my mind in 2016, like she was on her way out. Anyways, like, I think she probably would have retired in 2016 if she hadn't gotten the ban, you know, and, you know, when she got the ban earlier that year, like, I think she would have gone through that Olympic cycle, and then, you know, probably like called it quits. And then, because of her, you know, stubbornness, like she, she said at the beginning of that press conference that she gave to announce her meldonium ban, that she refused to let her she she would not announce her end of her career like in it at an ugly with on this ugly carpet in this random hotel room like in Los Angeles like that was her famous quote and she didn't she came back she had a few big moments but you know her shoulder people in the tennis world will talk about her shoulder and i mean it it was held together by like tape and glue and pieces she could not move her shoulder she will never have a fully functional shoulder again. I actually heard that if you watch her when she lifted trophies, she would always lift them straight up above her head in this kind of weird way, like her her arms would say stay straight the whole time, and that's cuz she couldn't move her shoulder normally. <laughs> like that was actually because of how damaged her shoulder was. And this was before 2016 so you know i think this was the this was the time i would have i would have liked to see her career go out in without all of these asterisks without these uncomfortable things but that's not the reality like the reality is marie sharapova is complicated i understand why people hate her i'm not telling anyone to like her but to me because i've been a hardcore tennis fan there was always a lot more to sharapova than her just losing to Serena. Like like she means like her presence and what I've gained from her career is a lot bigger than that.
1: I appreciate that so much as someone who doesn't follow tennis, like both of you. I mean, the only things I knew about her was that she wrote a book about, and then like, that's one of the first forays into her. Like I, she never caught my attention in terms, cause I also wasn't super into tennis. Like I only got into it because of Venus and Serena. So, and now I care, but very much because of like, racialized dynamics in the sports and, you know, Billie Jean King and what she's done. But um, I found this quote uh, very recently from an article about, about her shoulder from tennis world. And it was, it's just a couple days old, but I just to think about what you said, Lindsay, about her shoulder, it just really struck me because it said, this is something she said 30 minutes before taking the court, I had a procedure to numb my shoulder to get through the match. Shoulder injuries are nothing new for me over my time. Over time, my tendons have frayed like string. And just the thought of having to numb an essential part of your body to get through a match in order to survive the pain is like, it's staggering to me. Like, it's just... You know, and I, like, I'm one of those people that will quickly villainize anyone that says anything bad about Serena. So like, you know, I truthfully did not know, but I didn't know all the stuff that her family were Chernobyl survivors. I didn't know any of this. It doesn't make me feel like I want to read her book because I didn't she like bad mouth Serena also in the book, like you said.
0: Well, that's what we're saying. Like it yeah. was the, her description of Serena in the book it was, just was really, like, yeah, it it was problematic at It was racist. Like it was, it was racist. I don't. I'm Not saying she's racist, but like it was a racist description for sure.
1: Yeah, and I mean I'm not. Yeah, I, for
0: me there's no difference there. <laughs> like yeah, I, yeah, you're right. No, it's yeah. it is. It, it, so like I no, I'm not, no like that. I'm not
1: like I'm not going to be key on that. But I mean one of the things that uh, it's funny when you started just talking about who's going to miss her. It's just really interesting because like you know that the, when athletes go, there's usually some type of fanfare. Just I didn't even know unless you guys hadn't brought it up. I'd have no idea, and like she was a fairly prominent figure at one point in time. But you know, it'll be interesting to see. Do you guys have any predictions on what she's going to do next? Like, what do tennis players do later?
2: Well, she's going to sell candy. Candy. She's been doing that for a long time. Yeah. What is the name of the candy? Sugar Pova. Sugar Pova. Sugar
0: Pova.
2: That means she's a businesswoman. Like, that sounds like something she's out been Parks an entrepreneur
0: for a long time. Like a lot of her. Like she is a bus she was on Shark Tank last night or this weekend. Was she? Like yeah, she was like <laughs> one okay. of the investors. Like okay, she's okay. she's like, you know, she wanted to be a businesswoman and she's been kind of building towards this part of her career since like 2012. So um she'll be she'll be fine. I don't know if she'll do
2: anything in tennis. Like I don't know if we're gonna see her like commentating or coaching or anything like that. It'll be interesting to see sort of what she does, how she interacts with the tennis world itself now I that agree. she's retired. But she's definitely yeah. going to
0: spend time making money. There were crickets. I mean, it was it was staggering how little. And I think, like, I mean, she never set out to be liked. Like that was never her goal <laughs> to be liked by her peers, and and she really wasn't <laughs> for the most part. I mean, I mean, I think we we also have to add to the Sharapova conversation and is that when she was coming up she was the way the media talked about her and talked to her um you know she was coming up in the wake of anna kornikova and you know they were they were both trained at the nick bulletary academy and they both were you know kornikova had made waves as this you know tall blonde uh people said she never won which was just way exaggerated like like Kournikova had a very respectable tennis career before injuries took off, but she also had, you know, moved to the United States to follow tennis and had gotten a lot of opportunities because of her looks and took advantage of them. And when Sharapova was coming up, I mean, when she was 16, um, before she won Wimbledon, like she was asked about whether or not. It was assumed that Maria Sharapova didn't care about tennis because it was assumed that Kornikova didn't care about tennis and that they like wanted to be models and that they weren't, you know, elite athletes. And Maria Sharapova was very sexualized at a very, very young age and very dismissed because of, you know, sexism and everything. And that's another part. I mean, her career has always kind of been told through these polls of Kornakova and Serena. And there's a lot more to her than either pole. And, but I think what I want to end with is Serena wins. Like Serena literally beat her, um, nonstop. Serena had the best tennis career. Serena is still playing. Like it, there, this rivalry was, was more about brands and was more about two players who didn't like each other and was more about, you know, the media wanting to pit women against each other and craving that and it was rooted in race and it was rooted in in all of this stuff in sexism and everything and you know, but at the end of the day like Serena wins. Like there's just no doubt about it. Like Serena is the champion and I think that's kind of the only way to win to to win this. Jess?
2: Lindy is so right in that Serena wins also, and that when we tell Sharapova's story forever, Serena will always be a part of it. And when we tell Serena's story forever, Sharapova will be a footnote. Yes. And I just think that that's really, yes, Serena has won this. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Next up, my interview with Claire Hanna, TV sports broadcaster an expert on volleyball and curling. Hello, flamethrowers. Shereen here. I am so, so excited to have my friend, Claire Hanna, on the show with us today. Claire is a sports broadcast specialist with CTV Regina, and she covers the Saskatchewan Rough Riders for the CFL on TSN. Her passion for sports journalism stems from her time spent as a professional athlete for the Canadian Women's National Volleyball Team. She represented Canada at the 2011 Pan Am Games in Mexico and played professionally overseas in Belgium. Claire attended UBC, where she received her BA and Master's of Management in Business. Claire helped the UBC Thunderbirds win the U Sports National Championship from 2008 to 2010 and was named U Sports Libero of the Year in 2010.
3: Hello, Claire. How's it going? This is a big moment, like (laughs) long-time listener, first-time caller. I'm so
1: happy you're a guest. We are going to talk about lots of fun things, including one of my favorites, curling. (laughs) Yeah. And I will obviously pick your brain about volleyball. But first, the important questions, the pressing matters that I need to discuss with you. I asked you what your favorite food was, and you said tuna wiggle. What? (laughs)
3: I'll be honest, I actually thought it was like a password or something to log into the podcast. And it's, it's my truthful answer. But it's this, I just make a pot of pasta. And then I put in tuna, capers, anchovies, olives. It's a spinach. It sounds so weird. But it just like comes together so well with like lemon juice. Sometimes I put parsley. It's wild. It's like a like kind of a hipster version of tuna wiggle, if you will. You know, it's not KD and tuna. It's like, it's cool tuna wiggle. Wait a minute, KD and tuna is a thing? Yeah, like I think people just make KD and then just put tuna in it and call it tuna wiggle. I is this a prairie thing? Because like I <laughs> I am from
1: the East Coast and I've never had tuna and craft dinner before.
3: <laughs> I I'll be honest, I didn't really grow up eating it, but I think it was a thing. I, I might have had it at a sleepover or two, but anyways, this is just a different spin on tuna wiggle, but it's delicious. I love it. If you're a pescatarian, do it up.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you and capers are underrated in my opinion. So yeah. <gasps> Agreed. <Yeah>. Agreed. <laughs> on to something which I feel is <laughs> equally as important as prairie cuisine. Is can you tell us a little about what is undoubtedly the most exciting time in Canadian curling? The Scotties Tournament.
3: Oh, the Scotties Tournament of Hearts. Well, just finished covering it. And this was a really exciting year, Shereen, because Jennifer Jones, she's from Manitoba, but she got in this year representing Wildcard because they put the top-ranked teams who haven't qualified through their provincial championships into this wildcard game. So she made it in that way. She has won six tournament of hearts. And it's tied with the most ever Colleen Jones. And so if she won this one, she had a chance to make history and she made it all the way. She got bronze, didn't win, but it's, it's pretty amazing getting to cover somebody like that. Who's won an Olympic gold medal. She's been a face of curling and is just kind of a legend in the sport. And so that was, it was just neat to watch her do her thing gritty. Like they didn't have a great week and they still managed to get bronze. They just grind it out.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So that was that was pretty cool. But I, I haven't even talked about the winner, but that was just my overall thoughts just on, on getting to cover this.
1: Yeah. Is this your first Scotty Tournament of Hearts?
3: It is. And I've covered the Briar, which is the men's version, three times, just by chance because of the locations I was in as a sports reporter. So this was my first chance to cover the Scotties, And I also felt really cool about covering this year, Scotty's, because for the first time in history, Curling Canada introduced equal prize money for the women and it, it was equal to the men. And the men got a bit of an increase too, but both sides now, the to- total prize money for the winner, I think was $105,000. Wait, so
1: that's per team or per person on the team?
3: That's per team. So, yeah. I mean, however they want to divide it up. I think it's probably four ways or maybe five ways with the extra person right. and coach included, that right. sort of thing. But yeah, it, I think it's a pretty substantial amount of cash. That's a fantastic. I didn't even
1: know. I just automatically assumed that the men, like the Briar Cup winners, make more. I didn't realize that this is is 2020 now, and I'm glad that Curling Canada is like you know up there and realizing this. This is so important because the Scotty Tournament of Hearts gets a lot of viewers, doesn't it? Like, there's a huge amount of support for this women's tournament.
3: Oh, so much support. And when I spoke with some of the players, and I'll, I'll quote Jennifer Jones here about, you know, how, how what their reaction was when they found out that it was equal prize money for the first time. What most of them said was really interesting. They said, you know what? If you look at the history of curling, we've always had equal media coverage. So TSN broadcasts, both of them nationally, same exact time slots. Um, the Grand Slam of curling, which is another tour, which is international. So you'll see Swedish teams you know, Italian teams. Mm-hmm. That with Sportsnet has always had equal media coverage and the men and women compete at the same tournament. So they'll actually rotate a men's game, then a women's game, then a men's game back and forth and trade off between events who gets the primetime game at like 6pm on the Sunday. Wow. So that's really interesting. And they've, they've always had equal prize money. So Jennifer Jones brought up, you know, we actually feel like Curling, for the most part, has always been equal to the men. This was just kind of an extra step. And, you know, a, a, again, a comment that was repeated over and over, long time coming. But now I don't think you can really pinpoint any differences between the two.
1: Yeah. Cause I mean, if we've got exposure, like media coverage, and then we've got, you know, I was looking at some of the teams, like, you know, saying that they've been covering the sport for years. And like, I think that's, that's important. And I think that there's always been, a lot of commentators that are women. One of the first sports that I saw consistently being covered by women because was Colleen Jones covering the sport. Yeah, and yeah, that actually makes a difference because I think we take for granted how often men are covering women's sports as opposed to women covering women's sports. But she was one of the first sports commentators I heard who was a woman on CBC ever or on 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 sports channels because of her expertise. Like I just I think Colleen is a place where is often overlooked for this kind, and I didn't know about the pay equity thing. So thank you for sharing that. That's kind of a big deal. Did you have a favorite moment this time?
3: At the curling event? Yeah. I'm just, well, the final ended up being a barn burner. (laughs) What is Um, a
1: barn burner for our list?
3: It was fire. It was lit. It was so exciting. It at first, it seemed like it was going to be a blowout. So it was team Rachel Homan representing Ontario. Uh, they were also at the Olympics in Pyeongchang facing team Manitoba's Carrie Anerson. And Homan has won this tournament of hearts three times. Ainerson, that whole team, uh, three of the four players have never won it. One player, Shannon Burchard, actually won it as a substitute with team Jones, Jennifer Jones, a few years ago. So anyways, two powerhouse teams going at it. And Team Einerson from Manitoba was up 7-3, to I believe, at one point in the game um, with Hammer, which is kind of like, okay, they're going to win this in the eighth end with just two more ends left. But Holman ended up stealing and they pushed it to an extra end. So there's never been, and this last year, there was also a comeback from four points behind. That set a Scotty's record. As the biggest come from behind victory in Scotty's history. And they were like only down four points, but that's a lot in curling. They were, again, a team was down four points in this, like Manitoba was at four points. Holman had this comeback, Ontario, pardon me, and Manitoba ended up winning it. So keeping that that lead, but it was just so close at the end. And so with curling, what's amazing is there's all this tension building to that final rock. And when the final rock when the skip is in the hack, you know, in the position to throw it. The place is silent. You could hear a pin drop because everybody just
1: throw it. Do you mean when the skip is like literally about to set the rock going down the ice? That that's exactly what, that's what is called throwing it. Okay, because they don't Correct. actually throw the stone. Like just be clear. It's like they
3: slide it. They, they slide push it. it. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to <laughs> and, make sure we have a lot of listeners that don't know curling, but they will now. <laughs> no, thank you for explaining that. And when they're in the hack, it's those black um, kind of rubber things that are in the ice, and it's you can put your foot in there and get some traction because when your foot's on the ice, it's incredibly slippery. Right. So when that player is just setting up to throw that rock and they'll be sitting there sometimes for like 10, 15 seconds, just motionless because they're looking at their target where they need to slide that rock. The place, it's full, it's silent. It's just the eeriest thing because usually in big moments, everybody's cheering, but it's silent. And then as they deliver slash throw or push the stone, as the stone moves down the ice to score or miss it's you like this energy starts building and it's either a oh my gosh oh my gosh they're about to miss or oh my gosh they need to sweep so hard to get it down there and it's just electrifying and then the place explodes when the outcome happens it's just such a cool sporting moment and so unique to any sport
1: i just i literally want to jump in my car and go find like a curling rink and like go watch and play (laughs) right now because um you just i love how excited you are about it and that's so important like i'm just and i'm sure there's many listeners that are getting a kick out of two canadians talk about women's curling in this matter but (laughs) y'all you need to check and, and and literally get out there and see it i think it would be so fascinating i'm going to assume
3: that canada is probably one of the top women's curling teams in the world is this true yeah, uh, that's a proper assumption. They didn't win the world championships last year. It was actually Switzerland's Silvana yes. Tirinzoni. Yeah, it was Switzerland. Then, I remember that. And also the Swedes, Anna Hasselborg, mm-hmm. they won the Olympics. Yes. So the rest of the world has, I, I'm not saying is catching up, they have caught up. Right. And so you can't assume that Canada is the powerhouse anymore. And that's actually been a topic of discussion like how, you know, w- what's happened in Canada? Is there less investment in grassroots, et cetera. But it's kind of fun. I think you need competitiveness internationally to grow a sport.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely agree there. Um, I did want to sort of take this and transition on the point that you're a volleyball player, and I love that you're talking about curling this way. But speaking of volleyball, there's so much <laughs> I want to talk to you about. Tokyo 2020 is coming up.
3: Yes. <laughs> and
1: I, <laughs> I, 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 how is that tournament looking at the Olympics? Like, is it the same, the qualifications the same way? Because like soccer, for example, which we talk a lot about a lot on this, on this show, um, there's 12 spots in the tournament in the Olympics. How does it look? Like, how are, is it the same? You, you compete regionally for a berth to go to the Olympics. Is, is it the same thing?
3: Yep. Yeah, you nailed it, Shireen. Um, 12 teams and it's two pools. Okay. So basically you play everybody in your pool and then I believe it's, um, the top two in each pool get a buy to the quarterfinals and then the other six teams play out. So, and it, it's so tough to make it similar to soccer, because I would argue volleyball, like soccer is popular everywhere on earth. It's not like there's just certain regions that play it. North America, South America, it's huge. Um, In Asia, it's massive. In Europe, like like I named it all, you know, Africa, it's coming along there. So it's just, it's really competitive. And so to make it to the Olympics is a huge feat. And some people, and I agree in volleyball circles, I would actually say the world championships is a better benchmark of the best players on earth or the best teams on earth because you get the top 24. And in the Olympics, because certain regions can only send one, you really sometimes miss out on some of the top. Teams in the world.
1: So, are the women's uh, world championships in volleyball every year or are they every two years or how does that work?
3: Every four years in the lead up to the Olympics. So, really? um, And, well, I hope I'm right on that one. Okay. But it's usually the world championships or maybe, sorry, pardon me. I think they might be every two years. Like, for example, they would be the off years from the like 2020 is summer Olympics. So they'd be 2022. And then you've got the 2024. I think that's how it works. And usually there's a bit of a nugget offered at the world championships for the top team or the top three teams it's been in the past, um, can qualify for the Olympics. So when I played for team Canada, we would always cheer because we typically weren't in that final or in the podium, we would be cheering, for Team USA, Team Cuba, Team Dominican Republic to get that berth to the Olympics there because then that would open up an opportunity for us in the pre-qualifying tournaments and have a better chance because we wouldn't have to defeat that team to get to the Olympics.
1: Oh, because they're already going. Exactly. Yeah. So what are some teams you think to look at? Who do you have your eye on? Like, I love that you're naming different countries in the world that are getting up there. You did talk about the greats. Like Cuba has a very strong program. USA does. Brazil, I'm assuming. Or is that beach? Yep. Yep.
3: No, you're correct. I'd say. So actually, the number one women's team indoor right now is China. And then second is USA. Third is Brazil. USA is always one to keep an eye on and I know that just them being our neighbors we would see them more in competition. They've got a mix of experience and youth on the team. They're coached by Karch Karai, who is arguably one of the best volleyball players to ever like set foot on the earth and he won oh, wow. he's the only player <laughs> he's 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 the only player to win a gold medal in indoor and beach. So oh. he's been coaching that squad and I remember the first time he coached them, we were playing against them and like just shaking his hand. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm meeting Karch Karai. And I I know I'm talking about a men, a male coaching a woman's team, but he just he brings that dynamic of indoor and beach experience, which is really important, I think, in the indoor game. But USA has Logan Tom um, pardon me, not Logan Tom. She she used to be on the team. I'm thinking Jordan Larson. She's been a vet. She's been on that squad. I think this is going to be her third Olympics and the team has settled for silver and bronze these past few cycles so USA is going to be really hungry to win it they always lose to brazil brazil is just a mecca powerhouse in the world and they're they have a different style they are They are – I love them. They're, like, outrageous. They're loud. They cheer a lot. Sometimes other teams think that they kind of get in their face, but I just think they own it and that they just bring a joie de vivre to the game.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is is so fascinating. It's one of the most – it's a very popular sport, obviously, and it's one that I see reflected. I didn't know that China was, like, you know, number one. Like, I just – I find this great to see because, you know, we get a lot of focus on – obviously there's soccer there's ice hockey and there's basketball which you know two of the teams that are going to the olympics are soccer and basketball so it's really nice to know about other teams that are happening like i tend to focus on those two sports but it, you know i'm really excited that there's all this to be watching for and now that our listeners also know who to look out for so that's very exciting also in addition to your volleyball expertise this is a conversation that we've had also you When you watch sports movies particularly, there's one that came out called Miracle Season. I always wonder about this because when I watch football movies or movies about soccer rather, I'm always looking at the technique. And as someone who's played at like the highest levels in the world, what – are you thinking about the technique? Like, I know this might seem like a random question, but it's like something, honestly, because when I watch volleyball, you know that my volleyball knowledge is limited beyond like my son's playing. But are you like, what are they doing? Because volleyball is a highly technical game. Highly technical.
3: Yeah, I actually don't think you necessarily need to be playing at the highest level to notice, you know, differences in the sport in a movie. But I remember... I think I was in university and I watched this volleyball movie with Sierra and it was just awful. Like they screwed the sport up entirely and I don't think you can call it a volleyball movie when you haven't even done your basic research. There was, there was, it was maybe it was, and Sierra being the actress and singer was acting in this movie, but it was like somebody on a team went back to serve and in that same rally, they were hitting in the front court. And it's like, okay, sorry, that doesn't, that's like literally you can play like, one hour worth of volleyball. No, that's never possible. So why put it in a movie?
1: (laughs) Okay. So it's like tantamount to not doing your research and not being properly equipped with basic stuff you need to know, basically.
3: It's like watching a goalie do a shootout in hockey or watching like, I don't know, like Serena get three faults on serve, you know, or not, you know, like get an attempt to do three serves. Like, it's just like clearly not the sport. And you just don't even have to be a genius to know this. It's, that's where it's embarrassing to me watching some of these sports movies. And I'm like, why didn't you just try?
1: Yeah, totally. Although this week in the magical world of sports, a Zamboni driver in Toronto won a game in the NHL. <laughs> so, you know what? We never know really, but no, I like, that's like magical moment as opposed to like technical, technically. incorrect. Yeah. Like, so, when you see these, are you like crazy? are you like what is happening here
3: well it just loses all credibility because then I can't believe anything in the movie and I'm not saying movies are meant to be truthful but I'm just I'm like okay this was clearly a budget movie where people didn't care why even put it on air you know why why make a movie that's done half-ass
1: yeah for sure absolutely and what about the miracle season what were your thoughts on that film
3: Okay, well, this is the movie I actually worked on. So just to preface this, I was the choreographer. So I actually read the script, I would say, like two dozen times. And it was a big script. I would go over every single volleyball scene. And I would look at how, based on how the writer had written the scene, how that would maybe look in a play. And, And sometimes there wasn't even any details. It was just communication between players. But I'd say, okay, I think this is kind of what it could look like on the court if they're saying to this, this to each other. And I did the coaching too. So I did recruiting of a lot of actual volleyball players who were being played, like playing extras, but then also the actresses um, who were just actresses trying to teach them how a volleyball player would move athletically how they would talk on a court how they would kind of have swagger and that that was probably the biggest challenge because you're taking somebody who's not naturally an athlete they've been working hard in classes in acting school and then trying to give them those traits if you will but yeah that was it was it was neat to finally be on the inside of a movie and think okay let's get this right and everybody seemed to be on my side that's why they brought in myself as a consultant to to make sure they didn't screw it up. But there was some not liberties taken, but there were some corners cut sometimes because and I I try to empathize with their side, there's budget constraints. You know, okay, we can only do 24 days of filming because this is the budget. We cannot miss certain scenes because we don't have time to refilm them. And so, you know, things like in volleyball, after every single set, you're supposed to change sides of the court. And I remember that was a big issue because they thought, well, if we change sides of the court, we have to relight everything because, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, there's always one, there's one team that's the huge focus, for example, our hero team. Mm-hmm. And so if you change sides of the court, you have to change all the lighting and stuff. And that, that changing lighting can take over an hour. And so there'd be things they'd be trying to kind of fight me on. And I would just say, okay, well, I'm going to offer you the facts and you just do with it what you will. And you go after, you make the decision after that. So it was sort of a give and take. But I mean, at the end of the day, I knew I had tried to do what I could to try to make it as volleyball factual as possible. Yeah, I know. I love it. And
1: when you first told me this, I was like, this is incredible. Like, I love that this is a thing. And I love that they're using you as a consultant for this. Like, you know, and if anybody out there wants a consultant on a movie on a feminist sports (laughs) podcast, feel free to hit me up. But no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Seriously, like I think this is great, and I'm so glad because it brings an authenticity to the film, which is what you're yeah. looking for.
3: And Shireen, just to jump in because it's funny, I was thinking about oh, we're going to be talking about this. The the movie was filmed in 2016, so it's four years ago. And sometimes memories get foggy, and I remember like having some anxiety on the film in in a female kind of way. And I know that, for example, the Harvey Weinstein thing came out today, and I'm not trying to make any like massive judgments on, you know, on sexism in Hollywood. But here's what I wrote in my notes. And Helen Hunt, who's an Academy Award winning actress was in this movie. And in my Hollywood observations, I wrote the only female and remember, this is a volleyball movie, a female volleyball movie. This is two women's teams or one women's teams trying to win state. I wrote the only female who gets much input is Helen Hunt. All the producers are men. All the makeup is done by women. The wardrobe is women. All the assistants are women. The directors and the first assistant directors are all men. I wrote, when I speak up, sometimes I'm told, let's not fight, and that I'm being bossy. And that the people who hired me to know about volleyball, they're taken aback and offended when I offer my opinion and advocate for an idea on the sport. And the last thing I wrote, most leadership roles are held by men. Wow. That's so, so
1: relevant and like, so I know. telling. And it, wow.
3: It blows my mind. And it's funny that I wrote those, like it's got my little notes in my cell phone, August 24th, 2016 at 11am in the morning. So I clearly was having a moment where I'm like, I just need to write this down because there was just some times where I thought, okay, like it's just kind of backwards that all these decisions in this movie being made about women is all done by men.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really glad that you said that because it's – and it's all correlated to who makes the decisions, who's in power, and how that power is applied towards other people. Like, and, you know, you're there for your expertise. You're not there you're symbolically. You're there for what you know. Yeah. So that's Wow, that's such a powerful point. I feel like we could talk forever and we probably could. <laughs> but I do really, really want to thank you for being on Burn All Down to talk about this multitude of things and sharing your expertise with us and yeah, it was the absolute pleasure to have you on. Claire, I'm a huge fan Thank of Thank you, you so
3: much. I love your podcast. <laughs> Keep burning it. Thanks so much, Clara.
1: Linz, can you talk to us about women's soccer, please?
0: Yeah, every now and then we like to do a little trip around the world to kind of look at the state (laughs) of women's soccer. And I think there's some very exciting stories to kind of touch on. First of all, the NWSL finally has a new commissioner in Lisa Baird. I'm actually very excited about her. A lot of the things that she has been talking about remind me a lot of Kathy Engelbert coming into the WNBA. She has a very good marketing and business background, which are two things that are very, very important to kind of taking the um, league to the next level. She comes into the league as her most recent position was as the chief marketing officer at New York Public Radio. And before that, she was a chief marketing office officer for the US Olympic Committee and a board of trustees for the Women's Sports Foundation. And she's literally called being the commissioner of the NWSL her dream job. And so it took way too long to get here. Like, we're just a few weeks from the season beginning. And there have (laughs) Uh been these things where like, I mean, she doesn't start for another couple of weeks. And there have been these deals where like, there are these possible trades sitting out there. And people are like, well, who has to sign up? For them, like, are we just literally waiting until there's a commissioner to like sign off on these things for real? Yeah, and wow. um, you know, we're there, we're waiting to finalize <laughs> a deal with CBS and everything like that. And huh. you know, I think uh, I mean, the league needs a commissioner, you know, for these yeah. things yeah. to be kind yeah. of finalized, so I think it's it's very good it took way too long and um i'm you know i am glad it's a woman um so i think that's uh that was not a guarantee by any means but yeah i think so the nwsl is getting ready to uh kick off in a few weeks here and it's going to be very interesting to see how the season goes but then we also have the us women's national team lawsuit gender equity lawsuit which is lots of court details coming up on that which could go to trial as soon as may um and like we mean trial (laughs) like this is getting real but we've also got the finland women's football league has been given a gender neutral name which you know i 'm always i'm always in fa- in favor of that um, we also have Spain getting a new deal after um, a strike. We just have them and our badass women last week. but I would love to start uh Saudi Arabia launched a women 's football league, and i just Shireen, I just want to hear you talk about this
1: well i if mean you don't mind starting <laughs> i have i have we had Breen Sadara on our show and she was part of the Jeddah football league and this isn't this new league that's launching in Saudi Arabia is not actually the first it's the first domestic women's league meaning that it's like a national league there'll be teams from all over where there was a more like i guess you could say semi-professional one that was the Jeddah women's league that and we'd had bidding on before so i mean this is great i mean i will be pro Anything that sort of amplifies and gives opportunity to women in in sports, particularly in the MENA regions, you know, I was I was on Twitter complaining about like the coverage because all the reports and all the stories on this followed the same pattern reporting on women in Saudi Arabia talking about how they were not allowed into stadiums, but now they are talking about how they can't drive. Now they can like, you need to get over those things. And like, I get it that it's part of the history. But I mean, like everywhere we look in the world is rampant with some type of systemic misogyny. I just feel like also, the people writing about it are always the same people. And I'm like, come on, like, let's let's find something else. Like, let's do it in a different way that doesn't, it's not so reductive. So, I mean, that always irritates me. And, you know, I always rant about it on Twitter. But getting back to the, the football, this is a really big deal because, like, I feel like Saudi Arabia is following the examples of other places. And, like, something that I don't want to understate is Spain, this new deal is a really, really big deal. It's it's a huge deal. And I mean, there's this momentum, there's this wave, and I don't want to say too much about it. It could be a ripple that's turning into a wave globally of the recognition of women and the importance of them having... Um, contracts that are legitimate and they're getting paid. There's no shortage of money in Saudi Arabia. There's really no shortage of money. So I feel like the woman can do this and get a living wage. Also keeping in mind that the league in Saudi Arabia does also cater to people from a higher socioeconomic strata. So I mean, access to sport is for, you know, I'm not going to say sort of like middle income, I would say upper you know, upper middle, like in terms of wealthy. I'm just going to say privileged. So there's also to keep that in mind. But at the same time, there are organizations doing really great work at grassroots levels mm-hmm. with underprivileged kids. So I want to see all of that develop. I don't want to just see. I want to see the development and consistency of access for people that like to access for football of young girls who aren't in part of those clubs who don't have access to those facilities and those resources so i mean i'm really happy about this and i do really respect the fact and this has to be said that in a lot of the parts of this league there will be spaces that will be women's only which means there'll be women trainers women officials women coaches not to have access to men and i don't find a problem with this i know some people are making noise about how it's not fair that men can't watch men fucking get everything all the time if you can't watch i don't care I really don't. So if women prefer not to have men there, fine. It's their choice. I would rather have women have options. And so as a practicing Muslim woman, as someone who still does exercise in a gym where there's no men, men, shut up. I don't want to hear it. Just give us the money and step the fuck out of the way. So that's how I feel about that.
2: Sure. Breaking news, <laughs> Shereen doesn't care about men's feelings. Yeah.
0: That is my favorite <laughs> quote of all time. Give us the money and get the fuck out of the way. <laughs> oh my god uh shereen how what is the financial situation in this league like they are all being paid do we know how much like do we know how um professional you know what i mean like how um full-time this is for the players yeah it's going to be a shortened league obviously and i mean a
1: sh- sorry shortened time and you know because the it'll be during what we know as the winter months obviously because like playing outside in 45 degrees celsius heat is not Possible or plausible, but it will be anywhere from what I understand. And this is not confirmed anywhere from, I think, 8,000 USD to 18, depending on the level of the player. Um, They don't have like sponsorship deals as such for more notable players, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. And this is something that I would love to see is sort of mainstream. I mean, there's a lot of politics and cultural, even within the country, like leniency in other places, like if you go towards the coast on the eastern side, there's a little bit more lax. You know what I mean? But like in terms of more conservative cities, for example, like Medina, you're not going to see women athletes in shorts on a billboard. You'll see them, but they'll be fully covered, right? They'll be in pants and whatnot. And even in some places, it depends. So that whole idea of how much can they make out of this is sort of unclear based on where they are. So I would be really interested to like, I will dig deeper into this. So I don't have a lot to report back yet. But I think this is a great step. How it affects the Jeddah Women's League is I think one will be folded into another. But it also means that I'm not sure how many of the people in the Jeddah the Women's League from what I understand wasn't as competitive as this might be. So I don't know if all of them will be able to find a spot. But what it does is opens up women's football centers and offices in different parts of the country which I think is crucial and creates jobs. So I am happy
0: about that. That is so important. I just wanted to like build you were talking about how we need to make sure like this we don't kind of look over What's happened in Spain. And I just want to highlight like, once again, it was labor. It was a labor movement from the women that got this new deal. Yeah. um They had gone, I mean, you know, I wrote in Think Progress last year, and I'm far from the only one, you know what I mean? Like, what we are seeing right now is like unprecedented amounts of labor solidarity and women fighting across the globe for more in sports and we've're especially seeing it in soccer, and all of these achievements are happening not because men decided to do the right thing one day (laughs) it's because the women realize (laughs) like their worth and fought for i mean the women in spain like these negotiations have been dragging out for 18 months um to finally get this first ever collective bargaining agreement um i think they had to sit out for like eight um you know strike for like eight games or eight fixtures and they got on strike in November of last year. And I mean, when you look back at like what they've gotten, like it's just infuriating that they had to do so much to get so relatively little. Um, and I don't mean to be mean what they achieved through this by that. But like, you know, part time players are expecting a 50% increase of in wages from 8,000 euros to 12,000 euros and there's a minimum uh, salary of 16,000 euros for full-time professionals and you know they were also able uh, it seems that you know I haven't seen the CBA obviously but it does seem like they were also able to achieve um maternity injury and holiday provisions um to get that but like we're talking like this span. How much money does the Spanish this Spanish football have? Right, like yeah, so much. No shit. And these women had to like like their big thing was like to get from like eight thousand to twelve thousand euros for part time players. Like <laughs> it's just it's it's actually mind boggling when you think about it. Like it's just. Ew. Not, and once again, I do not say any of this to belittle like what these women accomplished because they – I mean, they had to fight for this. And like I'm so glad like they got the benefits and that they got the improvements in their lives that they did. But I'm just so mad at when you compare it to the amount of money that the men are getting. It can be a little infuriating. Jess?
2: Yeah. I wanted to go back to Lisa Baird really quickly. I, I am excited. I think the potential – um, with her as commissioner with all of the experience she has extensive marketing experience just like she has incredible marketing background, and one of the things i think is interesting is thinking about this season of the nwsl well i mean they're going to have a 12-day break around the olympics uh if the olympics happen uh but they're supposed to have a 12-day break around the olympics and it's a moment right like this is we talked a lot about whether or not the NWSL capitalized on the World Cup last year. Well, Here's another opportunity to take the sort of fervor that's going to come with the U.S. Women's National Team competing again, and I you know, assume doing really well, um, and what will the NWSL do with this moment in time? And so I think it's really interesting that they've hired a woman to be in charge who has so much expertise in marketing. Like, I just... I hope that we will see better choices around all of that stuff that we've all been waiting for. You know, they have, you know, Budweiser sponsoring them now. Lindsay mentioned the CBS Sports is probably going to pick them up. Someone just needs to sign that. So <laughs> I'm interested in that. I also just – the other thing I wanted to mention when I was prepping for this and I was reading around, Meg Linehan, uh, flamethrower, friend of the show, uh, she wrote an interesting piece not that long ago about the USL, which I will not even pretend that like I understand – much about the USL, but it's, you know, like it's a sort of like division two professional league kind of thing in America. They used to have a women's league, it folded in 2015, and they haven't really done much with the women's games since then. But they recently hired, and Meg has a great piece about this, a uh, former US national team midfielder, Angela Huckles, as a senior consultant. And it looks like the USL might be expanding into the women's game which would be really exciting maybe not as competition necessarily as the nwsl maybe they're going to create like the league that will feed into the nwsl but just the idea that there's more expansion i think that's really cool next on to our favorite segment of
1: this show jess can you get us started on the burn pile
2: yes so I just made a joke about whether or not the Olympics are going to take place (laughs) this summer, and that's what my burn is kind of about. So on February 26th, which was Wednesday of this last week, a member of the International Olympic Committee speculated uh, to the AP that if the coronavirus continues to spread, the Tokyo Summer Olympics this summer are most likely going to be canceled rather than postponed or moved. This set off a Lot of denials from so many people involved in the Tokyo Games saying that the games are going to happen. Like, to the point where two days later, Thomas Bach, the IOC president, did a conference call with three of Japan's main media outlets to reassure everyone that games are happening. On the intervening day between Wednesday, when this IOC member said this, and then when Thomas Bach did uh, his conference call, so Thursday, Of last week, Japan's prime minister, Shinzo Abe, surprised a lot of Japanese parents (laughs) when he announced that all schools would be shut down through the end of March. He also requested that a lot of major sport and cultural events also be postponed or canceled. Earlier this morning, they ran the Tokyo Marathon and they actually, I mean, this is one of the six major marathons in the world and they canceled it all except for the elite runners so that they didn't have 37,000 people coming to town. But it's the school closings that I just want to focus on for 1 minute. It's a weird decision because Japan itself is not a hotbed for the virus and children seem to be less affected by the coronavirus than other populations. It appears that the decision to keep children from their education is an overreaction to the fears that will about what will happen to the Olympics. And look, I'm not the leader of a country. I don't I don't want to be, but I'm I'm not someone trying to navigate a possible pandemic, the school closures might be warranted. And looking back, people may see this as a move that was smart and pragmatic. But there's something that I keep thinking, like there's something about the fact that we all believe very much that a country would sacrifice their children's education to make sure the mega event money swallowing Olympics can go on, that we all know that countries are willing to do whatever it takes to host these things once they, are, they commit the outsized resources to it, that the IOC would put incredible pressure on planning committees to do whatever it takes to make sure that these games happen. And that's wild if you think about it at all. And it should be yet another huge red flag about the Olympics and the messed up priorities that swirl around them. But I doubt that it will be. And so because of that, I just want to burn all of this burn 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 i had a couple of things obviously a couple because i can never just
1: have one that i wanted to burn and just very quickly one of the first one that i'll mention is ifab the international football association at which is a segment of fifa and they're the governing body they actually make up the rules and with the laws they met it was literally all white men and rob harris tweeted this and it was just like this is so ridiculous and i had mentioned that you know, this is the same group of people that decided that head covering bands, including hijabs and kippah and turbans, were not allowed in the game of football. And, you know, it was funny because somebody mansplained me, but that's that's different. Anyways, my point is that that's just a continuation. So I, I'm not going to dedicate it to the burn pile because FIFA's always in our burn pile. What I'm really upset about, and I'm very upset about this, I don't know if it necessarily carries into sport, but there is in Utah... There is a rule at this school, and this mother went online to talk about it, where young her daughter came home from school that day, and I found this um, in an online like news magazine, that the school policy actually forbids the girls from saying no when they're asked to dance. So the girls or boys, if someone asks you to dance, which in this traditional school sort of setup is traditionally boys asking girls to dance they don't have the school administrators decided that is too negatively affecting the boy's confidence so the girls are not allowed to say no so essentially one principal witnessed a girl say no thank you when a guy asked her to dance and this boy was particularly not nice to her and said no 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 and literally shooed her to the dance floor she politely said, no, and I'm quoting, quoting the article here. She politely said, no, thank you. And, you know, this is at Rich Middle School and um, in Laketown, Utah. So the principal, whose name is Kip Motah, intervened and he was like, no, 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 you kids go out and you dance. So he shooed her onto the dance floor with someone she didn't want to dance with. And what are we, what are we saying here? That body autonomy consent means absolutely fucking nothing. Like this is, this is terrible. And I said that this did qualify under the sports category because it's dancing aerobic exercise. So I'm like, it fits in with our burn pot. Plus I'm really just mad at this. Like it's, it's terrible. So it's been elevated to like the rich district superintendent and he didn't respond immediately. But you know, this principal stood by the school policy. And we ask all the students to dance, is what he said. It's the nice thing to do. Nice thing to do. And we will continue to be our policy. And there have been where he said he went on to allude that there have been previous situations where someone's uncomfortable. But, you know, the issues will be discreetly handled. Discreetly handled? You're shooing a girl who said no onto the dance floor against her world? This is bullshit. It's bullshit. It's unacceptable in a world today. When a girl says no, it means no. That's it. It's really that simple. I don't care what this principle says. I was appalled by this, and I want to burn it all down.
0: Burn. 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 lens. Uh yeah, I want to um torch the NFL and reporters carrying water for the NFL uh in particular. So the NFL and the NFL Players Association are in the middle of contentious negotiations over their new CBA. There's not the it won't expire before this upcoming NFL season, so There's no immediate, you know, look at a possible strike or sit out or losing games or anything like that. So it doesn't carry quite as much drama as a lot of negotiations. But NFL, the NFL itself really wants to go ahead and get this locked in, so that they can kind of negotiate their next television deals and everything with, you know, labor peace on the horizon. Um, But that means we're getting close to a deal that's on the table right now, which would give 48% of um, revenues – to the players, so not 50%, 48% is not 50%. I don't know if you guys know that. Um, and also at the same time, force the players to play an extra game. So move the season from 16 games to 17 games, which in the middle of um, a sport that is so dangerous and that we're learning the dangers of on the brain and the body and we're learning more about them on a daily basis, adding an extra game is actually kind of a mind-boggling direction for me for the league to go. Now look, these CBA negotiations are never that simple. There's a lot of players who want to sign it, who think that this is actually a good deal, who are... Um, kind of your rank and file players and there's a lot of star players who think that they should hold out for a lot more and keep fighting you know Labor negotiations are never simple, they're always complicated. But what's making me the most angry is that there's so many reporters who clearly have close relationships with the NFL and NFL owners who are tweeting out how good of a deal this is. I'd like to focus on Adam Schefter, um, the ESPN NFL breaking news reporter who has like 8 million Twitter followers and is one of the most powerful people in the business. Um, he tweeted this week, quote, if ratified by a majority of players, new deal would give them the high- Highest percentage of revenues of any professional sport going to 48% and eventually could climb higher than 48.5%. Uh, depending on media rights, that would mean more than five billion dollars in new money to players. But so that's end quote. Adam Schiffer's tweet is completely wrong. That is not at all true. Uh, if the NHL, that CBA, guarantees the players and even 50-50 split. The MLBs kind of floats, but like the minimum is a 48.5% to the players. And sometimes it's gotten higher than 50% of the players and the NBA players. It also fluctuates between 49 and 51%. Um, So Laura Wagner advice wrote about this and um, she asked for comment and Adam Schefter kind of negotiated like, added a clarification onto his tweet saying something along the line like talking about how the NBA and NHL have expenses duct- deducted from revenues and basically saying that yes his his tweet was actually factually correct he just said like net revenue or he didn't specify that it was net revenue he was talking about anyways it's all fucking bullshit like he should not be putting his hand on the scale in this way for NFL owners neither should all of these reporters who clearly value a closer relationship with NFL owners and with their sources than they do with reporting on this the the sport they're you know they make their livelihoods off of um you know they make their livelihoods on the back of the players it's kind of like the owners do you know it's all that business and look reporters every day have to balance what information from sources they're putting out there. They have to balance relationships and, you know, sometimes – I mean, it's it's always a balancing act when you're a reporter, especially when you're a beat reporter. But in this case, this these guys are actually putting their hands on the scale, and that's complete bullshit. And ESPN and Adam Schefter and all reporters doing that, they should just be ashamed. Uh, burn. 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 After
1: all that burning, it's time to lift up some incredible people. First, I would like to mention Sophia Flourish, who is now the first F3 racer in only 18 months after a horrific crash. I would like to mention Heaven Fitch. She became the first girl to win North Carolina High School Athletic Association Individual Wrestling State Championship last weekend in Greensboro. Team Manitoba, yay curling, led by skipper Carrie Einerson, who won the Scotties Tournaments of Hearts. More about that in the interview with Claire Hanna, as you just heard. Um, and the Scotties Tournament of Hearts took place in Jaw, Saskatchewan. Now, this team will actually represent Canada at the World Curling Championships in Prince George, BC, which starts on March 14th. Congrats, as you heard, to Lisa Baird, who was named the NWSL Commission. Um, Namita Nanda Kumar has been hired as a senior quantitative analyst at NHL Seattle and this will help build a team. We just love seeing women in these roles. Congratulations to Chelsea women's side who beat Arsenal 2-1 to win the Continental Cup. Heartiest congratulations to NWHL players Anya and Madison Packer, who announced their expanding family. The fabulous women's hockey duo are expecting a son in September 2020. And can I get a drum roll, please? (laughs) Our baddest woman of the week is so, it was, okay, I will give you that. It was excellent. It was it was totally excellent. Sabrina Ionescu, who is no stranger to this list, made history again on Monday. She spent the morning speaking in front of a worldwide audience at the memorial service for Kobe and Gigi Bryant. And then less than 12 hours later, while battling the flu, she led the Oregon Ducks to a resounding road win over Stanford, the number fourth team in the country, with the 26th triple-double of her career. And along the way, she became the first player in a D1 basketball history to amass 2,000 points, 1,000 rebounds, and 1,000 assists. Congratulations, Sabrina, and we will see you again for sure in this list. (sighs) What's good? Jessica, tell me what's good.
2: Uh, what's good? I I don't even know what's good. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those weeks, I feel. The, uh, last night, one of my very good friends, Emily, uh, who listens to this podcast, we went out and celebrated her birthday with a bunch of friends. And that was a ton of fun. I don't know. This week was we end of the week. We had nice weather. Ralph and I went for multiple long walks in the sun. And that was very nice. So that's what's good.
1: I'm going to go next. I always have like a ton of things. Um, Stephanie Yang came to visit me earlier this week, and that was wonderful. You'll know Steph from her fabulous work at SB Nation, uh, one of my favorite, favorite sports commentators, soccer writers, etc. cetera. We went for Korean barbecue, which I'd sadly never had before, and went to Koreatown in Toronto where we had these amazing little walnut cookies now, if you know Korean food, you know these walnut cookies of which I speak and they are life-changing. They literally look like walnuts and they're not. They're little cakes that look like walnuts. So red bean filling, walnut filling, almond filling, my favorite was not red bean. And I know that's like absolutely not acceptable to people who like are really legitimate, but i it's not my favorite. Okay. It's just not, but that's okay. Loved everything else about it. It just had a wonderful time. Um, I do also want to shout out Somebody while Steph was visiting, we went to the Khan Museum, which is the Museum of Islamic History in Toronto. And while Steph and I were walking around, and it's this absolutely gorgeous, stunning building. It's just, just gorgeous. Somebody approached us and said to me, Are you Shireen? And hi, Naheem. So he was like, I've been a listener since day one. I'm a flamethrower. I contribute. And I really want to appreciate that because it was it was wonderful and I didn't think that brown
0: gas.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's like I love
1: it. it that I don't often think as our flamethrowers as brown men, because I don't, and I should, because I do really appreciate that the flamethrowing community consists of everybody, and that's exactly the point. So Naheem, thank you so much. I was really, really flattered and a little shocked. So I'm sorry if I, I didn't seem as enthusiastic. I just was really, really surprised and really, really, really Appreciated you so much for coming up and talking to me and 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 talking about how much you love the one thing Nahim said, and I really hope it's okay that I share this because I'm about to was that you said that you were tired of watching sports, but after listening to our show, it gave you a new lens with which to look and appreciate sports, and that oh. meant everything. Yeah, that meant That's every- my
2: what's good too. Yeah, yeah. Like, that meant. Same. <laughs> it-
1: it, that interaction for me it makes it it's so worth it that people feel like this and appreciate this and like we're normal p- people we're just five women running our hustle and doing things and then that moment for me really lifted lifted up again what I know inherently about this this podcast but it just made it so worth it so Nahim thank you so much I just I just I'm so 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 appreciative of what you did and thank you. You were so sincere and it just it was lovely. It was a, and I, there's a photo that I would like to share with everybody and that would be great. Anyways, that's my what's
3: good.
0: lens. Oh. Are you okay? Yeah, that's <laughs> No, <laughs> and you know, you, you know what the biggest upset though is is that Shireen did not immediately voice note not us this entire interaction you. because Shireen voice notes us everything. <laughs> so I was very shocked. I know, I wanted to keep this like, as a
1: surprise because, like, this was such I, a big it it deal. Yeah, it, it was so hard. I didn't for know me. you
0: could keep secrets like that, Shireen. I did, like, I I'm did. So-
1: I did tell Claire before I interviewed her, and she was so excited. I okay. had to tell somebody. So
0: <laughs> That's so amazing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so my What's Good, first of all, um, I know that there is so much crossover because I hear from you all between the Burn It All Down listeners and the Power Plays readers, and I just – I want to sincerely, sincerely thank you all. Last week I talked about how scary it was going into this past week where I launched paid subscriptions for Power Plays and basically was trying to figure out if I had wasted the last four months of my life or not. Anyone who's been around me um, the past few months has known that I have not uh, been myself i have been a um disaster of a human being um you know launching something new is really scary especially when you're launching it hoping that it's going you know with the goal of having it fully support you as a human being and the first week of paid launch went really well and the support has been overwhelming and feel that <laughs> um sorry i'm now i'm going to get emotional but just like to feel cuz i haven't really talked about this um cuz i haven't let myself really exhale yet, but just to feel that the work I'm doing hasn't been for nothing and that these past few months, uh, anyone who's kind of been around me the last few months knows that I've just kind of been a mess of a human being. And uh, my co-hosts in particular have been ridiculously patient beyond what any human being should have to be towards a a colleague. But just uh, this, uh, the paid launch has gone well, the support has just been overwhelming. I've got to, I can't exhale yet. There's a little ways to go before I kind of reach the number that, you know, I really need to reach. So if you are listening, there is still time to subscribe and, you know, to, to join the community. But I do just want to sincerely thank you when I get emails saying like you are, like people are like burn it all down, listeners and long time listeners, and now you're subscribing to PowerPlays. like it's like the stream says like it's like hard to really put into words what that means because you just feel like you're in an e- in an echo chamber sometimes and it just you know I don't get to get out I don't get to interact with people so anyways it's just so it's just I'm I'm so grateful and bowled over, honestly, that um, about the support. So thank you all. Also, I'm in the middle I'm in New Jersey right now. I'm having a weekend of women's hockey. You know, I'm taking myself on a reporting trip for a power plays newsletter. So I was at the NWSL game or NWHL game last night between the Riveters and the Buffalo Buttes. And that was phenomenal. And then today I'm going to the professional women's hockey players association event in Philly. So I'm excited for that. And it's been great to see all the women's hockey.
1: Yes. Thank you so much. This is a really beautiful, what's good? You know, I'm here for all of that. That's it for this week in Burn It All Down. Although we are done for now, you can always burn all day and all night with our fabulous array of merchandise, including mugs, pillows, teas, hoodies, bags, what better way to crush toxic patriarchy in sports and sports media by getting someone you love a pillow with our logo on it. We have a Teespring store and it's teespring.com store slash burn it all down. Burn it all down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google play and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback. So please subscribe and rate to let us know what we did well and how we can improve. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. And you can email us at burnitall at gmail.com And check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you will find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon. We would really appreciate you subscribing, sharing, rating our show, which helps us do the work we love to do and keep burning what needs to be burned. As Brenda always says, burn on and not out.
0: we